0: Welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz. I'm a life science research manager and consultant. I'm here to help scientists and to help those who are managing to help science be successful. In this radio podcast, we'll explore current strategies and practices taken by some of the most respected life science leaders of today. We'll be hosting guests who lead independent or academic research labs, startup pharmaceuticals and biotech entrepreneurs, and other operational support leaders VPs, chief operating officers, managers, and the like. We'll explore some of the following lessons, what steps they've taken to reach their current scientific goals, what unexpected challenges they faced along the way, and what tools and skills that have been critical to their success. We'll listen to what advice they would give to those who are willing to follow them and to pursue a career in leading life sciences. Again, thank you for joining and welcome to the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast. Hello everyone, this is episode number four. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Colin White. Colin is the Chief Scientific Officer at Parcel Laboratories. Their work introduces cutting edge stem cell technologies to regenerative medicine, like those in bone, in cartilage, or even the rejuvenative properties of skin. He has an impressive scientific background from his PhD at University Edinburgh, Scotland, to his postdoctoral training at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's managed to make an amazing transition in the life sciences. He's gone from the rigors of publishing in academic journals to the fast-paced business challenges of industry. He's now using his transitional experiences to help others in academia to make that same jump in order to help them consults on a regular basis for postdocs and PhD trainees who are looking for a career in the life science industry. He's the co-founder and principal at White Consulting LLC. His firm takes his clients through a step-by-step process and coaches them on how to make those career moves. Colin is so charismatic and full of energy. I've had the pleasure of working closely with him and have seen and experienced his business acumen firsthand. He's been a true leader in helping science to move forward in the complexity of business relationships. Let's chat with him today and hear about his journey. We'll have to find out what awesome lessons he can teach us so that we can be successful in our own life science journey. We know his science, but what does it take to have a relationship between science and business? Let's listen in. Welcome again everyone. Thank you so very much Colin for being with us and taking this time to talk to our audience. Yeah, thank thank you very much for having me Damien. Yeah, let's talk about your transition and talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done in your scientific career and we'll go from there.
1: Sure, sounds good. So um, just by way of a background and and, in How I got to the position I currently have, Um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm clearly not from the US. I did my uh, PhD in molecular and cellular biology in Edinburgh, Scotland in the UK. Um, I came over to Brigham and Women's Hospital in Harvard Medical School to do a postdoc back in 2009. And a couple of years after that, I took an instructor position at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre. I did that for about two years. I realised that um, being an academic scientist, or at least being a tenure track academic scientist, wasn't necessarily for me. For a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, I wanted to move into the more translational aspect of science and, and the more clinically orientated aspect of science. So I started looking for jobs outside academia. I joined a very small startup company based in Natick, Massachusetts called cool. Parcell Laboratories which I'm currently um, still still with. Um, I'm the Chief Scientific Officer of Parcell. I've been there for about two and a half years now. And I really, really enjoy not only the scientific aspects of my work but also the um, the more commercial and corporate aspects that, that being the CSO of a for-profit entity has exposed me to.
0: Can you talk a little bit about this the science thing? That you guys are doing what kind of interests you about that science?
1: Sure, um, I, it was actually a change of field for me. Um, my PhD and my postdoc really focused on cancer biology, um, mapping out intricate sort of signaling pathways that are involved in chemotherapeutic resistance to um, targeted therapies. Um, in essence, my day-to-day life when I was an academic was, you know. Using a lot of inhibitors and running a lot of Western blots <laughs> wasn't oh, something yeah. that I particularly enjoyed doing day in, day out. Um, but what did attract me to it was, was the sort of therapeutic relevance that that, that aspect of science has. Um, I started looking for a field that I saw as still being quite infant, which was what attracted me to the position at Parcel. I didn't want to work for a Genzyme or a Pfizer or, or a huge hugely established drugs drug company. I wanted to do something that I believed, at least, was on the was on the cutting edge and would be indeed the future of medicine. So I joined Parcel, um, and we're essentially a regenerative medicine-focused company. We focus on developing stem cell-based therapeutics for the treatment of a variety of indications. For those of you that don't know much about the regenerative medicine field, it's very, very young. It's only really started to proliferate in terms of the, the number of Academics and corporate entities involved in it over the past two years, but it's a field that I think is widely accepted as as really holding the promise of being the next generation of of medical care.
0: I think you were talking about the fact that you've managed to transition a lot of your uh, basic research and science and start targeting a lot of the therapeutic approach to it, and then now you're looking at the business side of things and looking at a, a unique sector that hasn't been fully debe- developed and completely in like the regenerative medicine area and I, th- I find that fascinating because I think a lot of people do want to go towards the big established pharmaceutical and biotech companies when in actuality you've kind of taken a, a unique approach and yet you're like hey I have some value here that I can add to some of these smaller groups here that I can add a little bit more can we talk a little bit about that? Like, at what point did you start knowing that this is something that you can add to um, to the business side of things?
1: Sure, that's a that's a really good question. It's actually one that that I sort of play on with people I interview um, for positions within my lab at Parcell. Every career seminar or every career development talk I've I've been to or given. The people that are the people that are speaking always use this, this, this phrase called skill set. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to so really, yeah, so jargony. I really wanted to broaden my skill set as much as I could as much as I could. One thing I regularly say to people that I interview is assuming you want to leave academia, if you want to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, kind of know what your day holds outside academia, Join Genzyme or Pfizer or or, Novartis or someone like that. Um, these huge corporate entities have very well established processes and procedures, very well established, you know, protocols for who's doing what and who's responsible for what. Startups don't. There are ten people in the company I work with. Um, we don't have defined job descriptions. We have titles, but in essence, you know. Although I'm the CSO, I answer the phones when our receptionist is having her lunch break. I wanted to purposely join a small organisation because I feel that it diversifies your skill set as much as possible. Since leaving the academic world, I have done everything, and this is within this is within a frame or a time frame, sorry, of two years. I've done everything from basic science to being in front of the FDA four times, to being on the road with sales and marketing teams, to managing a lab, to, um, you know, being involved in accounting and or financial statements, financial projections, really things that I never, ever saw myself doing. But that's something I absolutely love about startup life. And it's something that I feel, you know, if and when I move to my next position will really... Um, Separate me from the crowd.
0: You know, I don't think the audience kind of knows your personality and who you are. And like, one of the things that I appreciate you is that you are willing to like roll up your sleeves and take on any tasks that just demands, uh, in order for you to get to a certain point in time. However, uh, do you think that it's, it's more attributed to just part of it is your personality? Or would you say that it has a little bit more to do with uh, you have much more of a clearer goal and vision? I mean, like, how would somebody within the, say, that lone postdoc or grad student, like, trying to make sure that they know how to pick up certain types of skills or what are some of the t- different trajectories they need to, to take? Or is it basically self-selecting?
1: I think, in my opinion, it's more self-selecting. Um, you know, again, getting back to, getting back to the the phrase that I always told, or that I always tell people when I'm interviewing. You really have to think about your personality and what it is you're looking for um, from from your future career when you're making the decision to join a large entity or a or a small startup. I think the benefits of working for a small startup far outweigh the um, you know the costs. Um, but in terms of costs, they are significant. I leave. I start my day at about six thirty when I leave the house to drive to the office. I'm usually not home before eight thirty or nine o'clock. You know, I'm still working postdoc hours, if you like. <laughs> um, that wouldn't happen in a larger entity. Um, I answer emails until eleven or twelve o'clock at night. I regularly get phone calls at five thirty or six o'clock in the morning. These are costs that you have to sort of. Take into account when you're when you're um, thinking about your next step and and where that next step might lead, but in return I get so much more experience that really you know positions me well for frankly a a, a non-academic science career either in another startup or in a larger company um, having that industry experience, but also having a a pretty diverse skill set is something that industry hiring managers look for frequently. And I think, you know, if and when, again, I choose to take that next step, I think I'm fairly competitive in terms
0: of what I've done to date. Do you find this now as you start to lead certain teams that people want to be around you and then kind of be able to move themselves forward and they're like, hey, you know what? I want Colin to look at me in the same manner. This guy is really like pushing... Pushing forward, maybe I should stay a little bit extra, or maybe I. How can I help them to move forward? Do you find that? Um, people yeah, I, that that's a
1: that's a great point, Damien. Um, and I, I hope that when I lead the science team at Parcel, that they all think like that. But but let me answer it from a different perspective. Um, I've had the I've had the good fortune of knowing several very very established um, entrepreneurs in the biotechnology field. These are folks that are not that much older than me that have really, you know, made and sold companies, built huge businesses and reaped the rewards of doing so along the way. These are folks that I look up to, that I admire, that really, you know, inspire me to just show up every day, if that makes sense. share their name. Um, Give them credit. So, so, uh, so I hope, I will in a second. So I hope that, uh, so I hope that, you know, I
0: inspire that same attitude in my team. Do you find sometimes that teams kind of highlight some of your own behaviours and you realise, you're like, hmm, maybe I should change certain uh, c- certain styles within your own behaviours? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd have to say I do. I work with a couple of
1: really, really bright folks um, who are quite different. Um, two of them are very, very like me. Um, they're just sort of... Okay, here's the task. Let's figure out the quickest way to get it done. And two of them are are much more thoughtful and much more analytical in their um, in their approach to their work. And frankly, I think that team balances out very well because while in essence my role is to you know push things forward as rapidly as I can, having people that actually sit down and and uh, analyze what might not be the quickest path, but what could actually be a better path to take is a is a balancing factor that I really enjoy having in my team
0: um, balancing factor kind of like do you find that you kind of try to surround yourself with those uh, kind of opposing people or those uh, parallel people
1: yeah that's that's exactly right that's exactly what I was trying to get towards let me let me give you a great example so mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. Um, We're working on on two projects at the moment, two major projects that are hopefully going to move into clinical development fairly soon. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we were essentially very close to a regulatory submission, and uh, we were working with a contract research organization to go ahead and finalize um, an assay to measure the potency of of our cellular therapeutic. Um, And I was looking at the data, and I was getting quite frustrated because it seemed like, you know, things were progressing, but they weren't progressing as, as, as quickly as I had wanted them to. So I spoke with the, the gentleman on, on my staff that was uh, was sort of responsible for leading the charge, and I, I sort of challenged him. I was like, you know, why, why is this taking so long? And he looked at me, and he very, very quickly said, almost with a smug look on his face, uh, he said, you know, I can get you the results you want in the time you want, but if you let me do these extra experiments, then I can actually design an assay for both therapeutics, not just one. So to me, that was a very expeditious way of of hitting two birds with one stone, and it's something I wouldn't necessarily have thought of because I had a singular end goal in mind, if that makes sense. Um, I had that end goal in mind because you know um, I report to our investors and I report to our uh, the other members of our management team. But this this guy had realized that that actually doing things a little bit slower and taking a little bit more money actually saved a lot of time and money in the long run. And he used his initiative to go ahead and go ahead and move that forward. And that's something I I, I really respected in him, and that's why I'm glad I've got that balancing factor in my team.
0: You know, this is actually an amazing example of, like, ch- quality choice types of team members. And I'm going to segue into a little bit more about how to find these types of team members. So do you mind, like, sharing some of your strategies on, on your recruitment selection process? Sure. Um, you know, when we
1: advertise a position, we, we use all the regular Career sites that are relevant to science, like Science Careers and Nature Jobs, and all, 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 of that, all of that good stuff. But everybody that works for me now is someone I've actually known before, um, either superficially through a connection or more in depth through a relationship that we've cultivated. Um, I'm a huge proponent of scientists taking it upon themselves to to network and get their names out there. And you know, when I was an academic. I hated that word. I still don't particularly like it, but it, it's, it's an invaluable tool to actually furthering your career. Um, I read an article a few weeks ago, I believe it was published in PLOS One, that actually stated that approximately 76% of science positions are simply never advertised because they're filled so quickly through people's professional networks. So that's that's you know in essence the strategy i try to use as well we do advertise and we, we do interview some some phenomenal candidates but i can get a i can get a much better feel for someone through building a relationship with them than i can in a 45 minute interview and i always kind of go with my gut on that
0: yeah i think that that can be sometimes a little bit difficult for a, a lot it's five of o'clock. people within the stems uh, in the stems field right so I mean, especially those that are a little bit more on the introverted side, those that are a little bit more on the reserve side, and those that just really do not like networking like you like you had <laughs> said yourself.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I I agree. It it can be difficult, but you know, I look back at, at the path I took and let me talk about that briefly for a second. Yeah, you know, like that's I, where
0: I, I'm segueing into it. I'm like I wanna transition and to like talk about like how did how did you do that? Like you really had to like push yourself, or was there any particular person that helped facilitate that? Uh,
1: not really. Um, so I'm naturally a fairly introverted person. Um, when I went to these careers evenings or or career seminars or something, I was the guy that was standing with a cell phone at the side of the room, you know, pretending to answer the really important email or take the really important <laughs> phone call. Um, it wasn't something I particularly enjoyed. But when I realized I wanted to leave academia, I had the, had the good fortune of going to a, um, a career networking evening, which was run by Harvard Medical School. And it was in essence, if you imagine speed dating, it was in essence, you know, groups of nine or 10 people sitting with um, one career mentor, if you would, who, who was someone that had successfully transitioned outside the academic field. And then, you know, every 10 minutes, the groups rotated and you went round. You, you went around to everybody. So everybody, all the mentors that were there brought a bunch of business cards. And of course, you know, it doesn't take much to send an email. So I, I emailed everybody i would met and, you know, thanked them for their time and things like that. And I actually suggested meeting a few of them for um, coffee or lunch. So I went and met with them and, and that's in essence a fairly easy interaction because you've already actually met the person. You know, it, it's just a it's just an extension of the of the careers evening, so to speak. And over a number of meetings I began to realise that this was much, much easier than people had made it out to be. You know, these these people were there to to help you. So that was when I started sort of contacting people that I hadn't met before. I started looking, you know, online and on LinkedIn a lot for for people that had a a career trajectory that was similar to the one I wanted to take. I looked for common paths in our history, like, you know, the department at Harvard or whether you went to Harvard or were you a member of a society or something like that. Just some sort of common trait that I could leverage. And I went ahead and just reached out. And sure, some people didn't reply. Some people replied saying, oh yeah, love to talk to you. And then you never heard from them again. But a couple of them replied um, and we met for coffee and they're people that I'm still in touch with. One of those connections was actually, um, and currently still is, a member of Parcell's board. And he said to me on that first initial phone call that came from an email to a guy that I had never heard of before, um, I happen to know of a company that's looking for a new CSO. Would you be interested? Two weeks later, I started. (laughs) That just goes to show the the power of networking.
0: You know, that... Is an amazing, amazing story, and how you talk about being able to just make those first few steps. And you had just talked a little bit about that. Like, you picked up the cards, you sent them an email, you met with coffee. And I think these are some of those little choice actionable steps that people don't realize that like a follow up email, hey, how are you doing? And talk a little bit about some of the things that you're interested in. I think, like a lot of people, don't do enough of that follow up, and so. How? But un- unfortunately, I think people get scared about the non replies or the rejections. You just said yeah. that you you expected that, but I think that paralyzes some people.
1: Was yeah, that uh, it,
0: something that you've ever th- uh, thought about?
1: Not from a
0: paralysis point
1: of view, because while it's disappointing, you know. I was always aware it was going to happen, so uh, I just kind of got on with business. But recognize that, you know, a few questions ago, Damien, I told you my workday starts at six thirty, and I'm not home until you know eight or nine o'clock. Recognize that the majority of people you're working with are working, or th- that you're emailing, sorry, are working with schedules similar to that. Um, so, respectfully and I do mean this with all respect to the people that are listening to this, but you're not necessarily at the top of their priority list. Um, There are some people that will make an effort to go ahead and get back to you. It might take a few days, it might take a few weeks. Um, And there are others that simply won't make that effort. But, you know, the power is in the numbers, so to speak. If you email email 50 people and 10 get back to you, that's 10
0: connections you didn't have before. That's amazing. And I think that I like, get uh, focused towards that and keep that mindset. Really, yeah. will help uh, will help those. You know, I want to go back a little bit when you just said you weren't much of a an uh, extroverted person. You were you were that guy that kind of like shuffled off or in that corner with your cell phone. <laughs> yeah. And <in> that you, <laughs> However, like I know you. Uh, I've known you now. Post that uh, this point and. I've told the audience before, like, you're very engaging, charming, and very, like, easy to talk to individual and pers- uh, person, like, the person that you described before, I would never have even, uh, even known that uh, known that person. So it just makes me believe that, like, you learned a lot of these types of uh, networking and social interactions through the business side of things. So I want to delve a little bit more into some of that, uh, that business side, these skill sets that you've been picking up. And... Maybe I'm completely wrong, and you were actually this always this sociable p- type of person.
1: No, you're you're not wrong at all. Um, you know, I wasn't lying when I said I was. Uh, I was fairly introverted, and and I do believe that you know over the last few years in the non-academic field, um, um, I've you know, my personality has come out a lot more. But that's because, and and this is just my belief. You know, others may agree or disagree, but I. I believe that um, industrial science or science where a diversity in your skill set is required as opposed to an in-depth um, knowledge of one particular field um, in that is often the case in academia is something that really allows people to showcase their experience and their expertise. And once you showcase that and once you receive good feedback for that, you know, you um, it tends to it tends to allow you to come out of your shell a lot more, so to speak. I was never designed, I don't think, to be an academic scientist. Um, I was the type of scientist that that really, you know, couldn't handle reading twelve papers a day and and in in one particular field and couldn't handle, you know. Reading the 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 60th paper and how someone applied an inhibitor and and ran a western that that wasn't the type of guy I was but that I think is becoming more and more the case at least in the in the in the cell signaling field that I worked in in academia um, in industry we focus a lot more on a breadth of knowledge as opposed to in depth knowledge in one field and also a breadth of skills and experience that. Together, make a team. Um, you know, whole, if you will,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and actually being able to leverage people's strengths and acknowledge people's weaknesses, but fill those weaknesses with other people that have those strengths, is something that is is very significant, and I think something that really makes people shine. Um, there's no such thing in industry as your project. It doesn't work like that. The team have a project, and the team can delegate those projects as you know they see fit to the the stronger candidates and and pick up the slack and the weaker candidates for those for those relevant things so that i think advances not only the common goal quicker and 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 more cost more cost efficiently if you will but it also makes people recognize that they can do a lot and these are their strengths and once you accept your strengths you tend to become less introverted does that answer your question that was a rather
0: roundabout way No, no, it's actually like completely answering my question. I think I'm definitely uh, branching out to more other questions within that. But I think one of the things that we definitely want to make sure is that like what are the types of skills to make those transitions? What are the things that we want to be able to keep an eye on and be able to put a a pulse on what is the business set of skills and what are like the scientific set of skills and what are the translatable skills? And and so one of the things that, I've gotten within some of my clients and the people that I've worked with is there's this like inherent fear towards some of the business side of things and big part of it is the financial aspect. So yeah. can you share with me a little bit about your experience before as a researcher with within the finances and then how do you transfer some of those skill sets within the business finance where? Financial you know, metrics is a huge uh, component.
1: You know that's a that's a really good point. Everybody thinks when they join industry, there's all of a sudden a tree with money growing from it, and uh, you just cost is no option, right? But that's yeah. that's that's simply not the case. Um, I don't believe that that, and to your point, you know, some of the clients that you've worked with obviously acknowledge this. I don't I don't believe that. The, those those people that are in academia necessarily have an appreciation for things like budgets and timelines and, and all the things that drive industry. Mm-hmm. If we are, literally, um, I spend probably about 20 to 30% of my average week projecting timelines, how long things will take, projecting budgets, how much things will cost, um, and then making a case and justifying that to our board of directors you know this is this is a very significant part of my life it's a skill set that I've acquired over time but mm-hmm. it's a skill set that that I did get a little bit amount of experience in when I was in academia think of you know writing a grant for example mm-hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to have my own grant from the from the DoD when I was still an academic scientist and one of the things I had to do was write a statement wow. of work and and design a budget and things like that. Now, granted, you know the 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 DoD didn't necessarily hold me to that the way our board of directors would hold <laughs> me to that, but it was a skill set that that I picked up through practice and and just kind of slotted into my my daily life at Parcel. I think having an awareness of realistic goal setting and realistic financial projections are something that is is fundamental to success in industry somebody told me under promise and over deliver that's pretty much the mantra we use you know always project slightly longer than you think it'll take and project slightly more than you think it'll cost Mm -hmm. and if you beat it great but don't shoot don't shoot yourself in the foot yeah
0: and i think that in science we we want to be as we want our data points to be as tight as possible, and so we try to be as as precise as possible. But I yeah. think, but but in the real world, and particularly in the business world, there's a lot of like ebbs and flows and and challenges that are completely unforeseen, right? Yeah, no, uh, of course.
1: You know, we take a lot of the the emotion, if you like, out of the science we do. We drop projects and pick projects up with. A meeting's notice. We, we, you know, make one hundred and eighty degree turns on a weekly basis. Um, these are things that you can't prepare yourself for when you're projecting out. You know, future costs, deliverables, timelines, etc. So, you do have to you do have to be a little bit flexible in your aims, so to speak.
0: I'm glad that you just mentioned about you taking out some of the emotions side of things, and I think that's one of the things that some of those in academia versus those in business is that there is, is some, sometimes a lack of the passion for science within the business field. And I know there are those in business and that say, no, that's, that there, there still exists that. What are you, some of your opinions on like, the, where is the passion of science? I agree but disagree at the same
1: time. And I kind of go back to one of the points I made earlier. At least in my experience in industry, there's no such thing as your project, mm-hmm. so you don't have you don't have the same ownership of something that that you would necessarily have in the academic field. You also don't do things um, necessarily as in depth as you would in the academic field, and, and I'll explain that in a second because mm-hmm. uh, not to not to slant industrial science, but but you know we don't ask questions just for the sake of asking them. We ask Mm -hmm. questions that are relevant to furthering development of a product candidate or an asset of some sort. The questions that are not relevant, we simply don't answer. So I appreciate when people say, oh, well, that's not, you know, there's, there's no emotion in science. But actually I counter that by saying, well, we're going to put a drug in the market that will... You know, help people that are in need of help. To me, that's a very emotional accomplishment. So I guess you just kind of have to weigh in your head what emotions are, are are driving the science, so to speak. Is it is it your personal ownership of publishing four papers and being a world-renowned expert on a on a signaling pathway, or is it putting a drug on the market and probably doing so with little or no credit?
0: You know, that's
1: <laughs> That's the emotive aspect that I think people need to make their own decisions for.
0: Well, I had an old, um, an old uh, postdoctoral mentor of mine when I was young, who said there's two types. He said there is two types of science, because there's ones, uh, there are the ones that like, so the heck what? Yeah, so what? That's interesting. And then the second one is those are the ones that change the world, and and that just kind of highlights that clear objective of like getting it to market getting it out to those people that really can create um a world impact and even in you were talking about earlier when we first started this conversation about uh having applied some of your research and science towards uh within such a small field of a regenerative medicine and i think that that requires a huge huge vision upon your part so, where did you start developing this vision on your own, and like, how are you now, like, uh, using that to like further, further helping others within the within the academic transition into industry? And we'll go a little bit more into that transition into what I had talked about. Everybody is how you now been consulting.
1: Sure, um, let me let me answer your first question. How did I, how did I choose the regmed field? Um, I'm a, you know, deep down, I am a science junkie. I read nature every week, I read science every week, and I read cell fairly frequently as well. I don't necessarily read every article in each of these magazines. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I more skim them. But I do that not necessarily to appreciate that someone has um, mapped out, you know, some new... Uh, excellent discovery and had their had their paper published in Nature. I spend much more time reading the the initial sections and the and the news and views sections and things like that because they they give you a really intricate appreciation of what's going on in the global scientific world as opposed to what's going on in a singular lab at Harvard. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think one of the best things that I can recommend that the folks listening to this do is appreciate that science isn't always about your day in the lab. It's a global field with discoveries going on daily and things happening, you know, almost on an hourly basis. Quite often we lose sight of that. I I know I was the same when I was when I was a postdoc Um, So just taking half an hour, you know, when you're sitting in your couch at night instead of watching TV Flick through the nature website or the science website and see what's going on because all of a sudden you'll come up with Articles discussing things that you kind of think whoa, that's interesting and that was really what Positioned me for the change that I wanted to make
0: That's awesome. So you're now seeing those connections and seeing how you fit within those connections, and then the work and and history that you've been developing.
1: Yeah, exa- exactly. You know, it's 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 going to you know the the old adage of find a field you're interested in and and go for it, and the rest will fall into place. And that's exactly what happened for
0: me. So then, that's it's kind of a frustrating point for for say a senior postdoc. Who's uh, who? He or she's like on their fourth, fifth year, and they're like, "Ah, I I'm just getting done with this manuscript. I, I don't know if I'm going to take an academic position or I actually want to make the transition into uh, into industry." And they've spent a good portion of their training just working on that science, and now they want to do that transition into industry, but yet they get, keep getting their doors slammed on them, and because they're just presenting a lot of the work that they've developed. How did you kind of like uh, go through that like transitionary period? And then like, what are some of the things that now, like you start seeing within some of your clients, within your consulting practice that the struggles that they go through from having their work be very granular and showing them how it fits into much more of a macro, uh, macro, uh, economics, if you will.
1: Yeah, no, that's that, Damien. I'm glad you asked that. That's a fantastic question. Um, how, how did I do it? Well, truthfully, I don't really know. It just kind of happened. But I, think a lot, <laughs> I think a lot of it came from the fact that, you know, I, I talked a little bit earlier about my efforts in networking. And um, a, a result of those efforts was I actually showed myself as a, as a, as a person as opposed to just a scientist. Um, And and that's not meant to be derogatory, but I'll explain in a second, you know, most scientists that I work with um, or that I interview have got this microscopic view of the five years they spent as a postdoc where they were involved in this most delicate project that that required, you know, the stars to align and, and the manuscript was published. Yep, that is great. That's 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 a huge achievement, and I'm not taking that away from anybody. But again, going back to one of the points I made earlier, recognize that breadth of skill set is more important in industry, not your ability to go into the minutiae of, of one particular field. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make... Um, or academics make, at least based on my experience, is they don't give themselves enough credit. You know, I guarantee that if you've been a postdoc for five years and you've worked on um, a project and you finally published your, your nature paper, so to speak, um, you will be much, much more than just that singular nature paper. You will have achieved so, so much more actually recognizing those transferable skills recognizing that you have acquired the ability to go ahead and um, you know write a grant or, or or publish a paper or speak at a conference or get a travel award or or do anything like that and recognizing that it was you that did that is something that most people, just think in the academic world, oh, that's just another travel award or it's just another grant. It doesn't really count. These people don't really care about it. <laughs> the simple fact is that shows achievement on your part. And achievement speaks to your skill set. And skill set, again, going back to the breadth of skill set, is something that's very important.
0: You know, i not going to lie, like, um, I kind of snicker and laugh because I experience the same thing when I see young investigators that I, I work with that make that transition into from a postdoc into an actual independent investigator, that they almost don't believe in their own capabilities. And it's completely recognized around from others that are around them that they have all the skill sets and ability. And it becomes like this psychological block. And you've been you've been managing to like help unblock a lot of these uh, young researchers and show them that, like, you've got a lot of these uh, skills and talents. And how do you think that it plays out much more in the, on the global on the global scale and how other in, uh, industries are looking for some of these talented, uh, talented individuals? I mean, it's placement is a huge issue. It's, itself.
1: Yeah, no, you're you're completely right, and you 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 made a really excellent point there. But you know, even the the faculty members that you work with still don't recognize their own abilities. It's this stuff doesn't happen by accident, right? You don't mm-hmm. just all of a sudden get a get given an assistant professor position at Harvard or MIT or something like that. You know, give the recruitment um, panel some <laughs> some credit. It didn't just happen by accident. They recognized your your abilities. Um, people in science, I, I, I don't think have an appreciation for, and this is you know talking from experience and the clients that I've worked with, but I don't think have an appreciation for everything they've achieved because they constantly tell themselves, oh, it's, it's just another grant or it's just another paper or it, it doesn't matter outside academia not true. I see you know, someone with a, a long list of accomplishments that they, they deem to be meaningless and to me it says you've got a long list of accomplishments and that's the type of people I want, I want working
0: with me. Nice. Because they're clear, they know exactly those, what those skill sets can bring to your team. Exactly. But you have to be able to tell me
1: why I should care. What, why, why should I care about that achievement? This is one of the things I work with clients that I work with regularly to do, um, particularly in your resume and things like that. Most resumes I've looked at um, from, from both my experience hiring people but also the clients that I've worked with just sort of list uh, uh, a ton of, you know, got a grant was involved in this project did presented at this conference why should i care that's the question i always ask what does that achievement mean put it into context for me and tell me why i should care so for example if you got a grant how many people applied for the grant what was the dollar amount of the grant you know how did it expedite research in your lab show an appreciation for not just what you achieved, but why it's relevant. Being able to contextualize like that is something that is hugely important in industry because ultimately, and this happens to me on a daily basis, therefore it happens to my staff on a daily basis, I go in front of our board and say, I need a million dollars, and they're going to look at me like I've got three heads. You know, (laughs) tell them why they should care to give me a million (laughs) dollars.
0: It's... uh... Yeah. No, I've I've been down that road before. I'm like, what do you need for a startup? Uh about a million. Hmm. Yeah, it's like uh Okay. <laughs> and so therefore you're left to like figure out the in-betweens or how it's relevant and it becomes like more of a waste of time versus those that like, hey, these are some of the the objectives we need and reach and it's we're gonna require this resource and this resource. And it all equals up to a million.
1: Exactly. Provide context, tell them why they should care. And if you make a rational case to a board of directors or a hiring manager or a PI or whoever, you'll find them much more receptive. Most academics I know don't often make that rational case because they take it as insignificant because it's in their head. Okay, it may be in your head, but it's not in mine.
0: <laughs> oh, the good old curse of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I've been totally taking up a lot of your time, Colin. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity If you like, what are some of the things that if you, to that young uh, Colin White during your postdoc, what would you tell uh, him back then that would get him to, be closer to his uh, career dreams and objectives.
1: Recognize what you've achieved. I think that's the biggest aim or the biggest uh, phrase I could tell myself, you know, a few years ago, but but also any young scientist that I interact with frequently now. Um, recognize that you don't need to compare yourself to the, 40 year old tenure- tracked principal investigator recognize that that you don't necessarily need to compare yourself to the, the postdoc in your lab that has published 10 papers. Chances are you, through working hard and you know advancing stuff in the best way possible, you can have actually achieved a lot. And have gained a lot of transferable skills, and have really built that breadth of skill set, if you will. That, coupled with the ability to present it in a very compelling manner, which is something you know you can learn very easily, mm-hmm. is one of the most insightful things that that I realised, if you will, um, because once you have a recognition for your achievements, everything else becomes so much easier.
0: Uh, Amazing, amazing advice. Keep an overall breadth of knowledge. Understand how each of those skill sets can be applied towards that knowledge. It's great, great. Yeah. Well, this is your final question is, what is your definition of a life science leader?
1: Somebody that goes ahead and actually shows people the bigger picture and how their work fits in with the bigger picture and therefore instills in them a recognition for what they've achieved. That's something I try and do with my team as often as I can. I'd love to do it more. Um, but actually motivating people by showing them results and showing them how they contributed to results I think is something that's very often forgotten and something that more leaders in the life sciences should do.
0: We are not a cog in the wheel. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, thank you so very much. And we'll definitely have some show notes, uh, your information in the show notes so people can reach out to you. And if you're more than willing to, uh, Colin is always up for uh, a a cup of coffee.
1: <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy to, Damien. Thank you very, very much for having me.
0: Colin, again, thank you so very much. <laughs> all right, now. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. What a great scientist and amazing business leader. Thanks again, Colin. If you'd like to know more about Colin, his company, and his consulting practice, please go check out our show notes and you'll see a list to all of his great published material and company information at www.leadinglifescience.org forward slash podcast forward slash episode 4. Thank you for listening to the Leading Life Science radio podcast. We'd love to hear from you, the listener. So please leave a comment or suggestions about questions you'd like to hear from our guests that could help you on your journey. Also, please let us know what leaders in science inspire you to pursue a career in the life sciences. Till the next time, happy sciencing. I'm your host, Damian Wilpitz of the Leading Life Science Radio Podcast.